good. As we come to your word, we ask that you would bless us with clarity and with understanding of it. Grant us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that believe. Do the work within us, each one of us, this morning that only you can do. And we thank you, Father, in the, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. <coughs> we return to Matthew 21. I am in a brief series in Matthew. This is uh, the 129th message in Matthew. We're rushing through. That's why Linda's laughing at the idea that I would be done by the end of the year. But see, we're, we're in 21 out of 28 chapters. So we're, we're coming into the, you know, not only in terms of the book, we're coming into the final quarter, but in, in the terms of the, the gospel chronology, we are now in the last eight weeks. And most of it is the last four days, five days. We are at Tuesday in that week. This is the day, or Monday in that week, this is the day after the triumphant entry. The following Thursday, or the next Thursday, a few days later, Jesus would celebrate the, the, uh, the Last Supper with his disciples. They would leave. He would go to the garden and pray, and early Friday morning be arrested, go through the trials, be crucified on Friday, be buried, and on Sunday morning be raised from the dead. So from a chronology point of view, most of what we have to go through now is going to take place in just a matter of days. It's going to be like that TV show 24 where it takes four months to get through a day. Um, our text begins at verse 23. Let me give you a, a little bit of a catch-up to that. As, as Matthew 21 begins, it's the triumphant entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem humbly, mounted on a donkey, uh, to the shouts of a, a massive crowd, thousands of people shouting out messianic phrases, as a result of this, the whole city is stirred up. Uh, if, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, then you would know this. I don't know, but I look at maps. The Mount of Olives is just east of the city. There's a, a small valley. It's almost like a wide ravine called the Kidron Valley that lies between the Mount of Olives to the east and the city to the west. On the west, the first side of the city is the wall of the Temple Mount. That's what you come to. So as these thousands of people come over the crest of the Mount of Olives through the trees, their shouts are echoing through the Kidron Valley and into the Temple Mount, and then into the lower city, which is just south of the Temple Mount. And the whole city is stirred up. Jesus enters the temple, and he finds it to be exactly what he expected <laughs> it to be. He finds it to be a den of thieves. There are people there selling animals and trading money. It was his father's house and his house. It was meant to be a place of prayer. It was meant to be a place where sinners could come and find mercy. But it had been turned into a place of profit by wicked men who were convinced that they were out of the reach of God. That's the idea of a den of thieves. 
A den of thieves, a den of robbers is not where robbers go to rob. It's where they go to be safe from being held accountable. These men think that committing these sins in the temple protects them from God's judgment. Jesus demonstrates that that is uh, so incorrect, and he does that by not only verbally rebuking them, but by forcefully evicting them, overturning tables and driving out the animals. And for a few moments at least, the temple is restored to its rightful purpose. We know that because the lame and the blind come to him and are healed. Those in need come to the Son of God with their prayer, and that prayer is answered for them. Jesus and his disciples spent that night in Bethany, and the next morning they started back toward Jerusalem, heading back west, just a few miles. On the way, Jesus was hungry, and he saw a fig tree next to the road, and he approached the fig tree. It was in full leaf, even though it was not the season for figs. It was too early for that. He found it to be empty of figs, and so he cursed it, and it immediately withered. It's an odd little story but one which is not at all out of place. In fact, it sets the stage for the chapters to come. Because within this picture, the the fruit of fig trees uh, begins to grow before the leaves begin to grow. And by the time the leaves are fully developed, it's a sign that the, the fruit is ripe and ready to eat. So this tree is advertising its own fruitfulness, but it's all a lie. And the picture there is... Not about figs, it's about Israel. Israel, at the moment that her Messiah came to her, appeared to be in full leaf, and yet was barren and fruitless. She had a form of godliness, but she denied its power, is, is how Paul describes that kind of thing in Second Timothy 3. Now, by the mercy of God, there's a believing remnant. There's 11 of Jesus' disciples. Judas, of course, is a, is a traitor and always had been. There's Mary and Martha and Lazarus who lived in Bethany. Uh, there are others who believed, but that's a small number compared to the two or three million who lived in Israel. Who didn't simply miss. There was no way to miss Jesus. There's no way to miss the stories of the healings and the stories of the teachings after three years. Israel was a barren tree. She was nothing but leaves, nothing but an empty boast of spirituality. And so we read in verse 23, I'm going to read, and uh, normally I read the full text and then go back through it, but it's long enough this morning that I'm just going to take it as it comes. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him where he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and where did you get that authority? Now, let me just underline for you that when Jesus entered the temple the second time this morning, it was not to cleanse it, it was to teach. But he'd caused such a ruckus the day before, I have to imagine that those merchants and the money changers see him walk in and freeze. Let's let, maybe we need the guards over here, and they just kind of watch him as he walks through and I imagine that maybe he went over to the side, to, to what we call the, the portico of Solomon. There were wide colonnades that were covered. And he sat down and he just quietly began to teach. Uh, here's the thing. Jesus could have quietly taught in Bethany that day. He didn't have to come to the temple to teach. He could have stopped on the Mount of Olives in the shade and taught. 
There's still a lot of people moving in and out of the city. But this is his final week. This is his passion week. And he's pushing these leaders to a decision point. He is going to make them either humbly trust him or violently oppose him. Uh, Spoiler alert, if you haven't read ahead, they're going to violently oppose him. Matthew mentioned uh, in previous chapters, he mentioned the chief priests and the elders, but this is the first time we've seen them. This is the first time there's been contact with Jesus. And what we see in their question is these men who the day before were slapped back by this interloper who took over the temple, they're now coming to reestablish their authority, reestablish their dominance. They're going to put him in his place. They're going to put him on the defensive by making him prove his authority. What sort of authority do you have? Where did you get it? So Jesus answers, and it's a reasonable response, really. Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Now, personally, I really like multiple choice questions because I never know what you're looking for. I never know what you're, what you're looking for. Uh, years ago at a, at a previous church, a guy came up before church and said, would you like to maybe have lunch sometime with our family? And I said, sure, that'd be great. And I just go about my business. And after church, we're home. Everybody's home. We've eaten. I've got my feet up. The phone rings. Um, were you coming? Oh, so we get up. Instead of just confessing, you know, I didn't know you were talking about today. I'm sorry. We got up and we went and ate a second lunch. I ate a second lunch. I think Linda picked. You know, well, I'm not too hungry today. He didn't make it multiple choice. Would you like to come today? Would you like to come? Right? That's my point with that that story. Um, This one is a pretty, pretty easy question to answer. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Savior. His job was to prepare the people to receive the Savior. He did that by preaching a simple sermon that applied to everybody. Everybody. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Every person who came to him needed to repent. Every person who didn't come to him needed to repent. Every person in Israel needed to repent. Every people, every person in the Roman Empire needed to repent. Every person around the surface of the earth needed to repent. It's, it's a message that applies to everybody. That's hard to find sometimes but this one applied to everybody john then baptized people who repented as a sign that they had recognized their sin were humbling themselves before god and wanted to be cleansed it's pretty simple what we see in jesus response is that the chief priests and elders are not able to put jesus on the defensive they try and they fail Nobody was ever able to put him on the defensive. People today might say, well, Jesus was his own man. But he's more than that. It's not that Jesus answers out of self-confidence. It's that Jesus answers out of a foundation of submission to his father. 
And he knows what the Father has commanded him to do and instructed him to do and is leading him to do moment by moment. And he is, he is just rock solid on that. He's at perfect peace with that. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that means he was and is the judge of judges. Nobody gets to stand in judgment on him. Nobody gets to rule him as king because he's the king of kings. Nobody gets to dominate him as lord because he's the lord of lords. And nobody gets to stand in judgment on him because he's the judge of judges. So think about this. Jesus Christ, the son of God, created all things. In him all things consist and hold together, Colossians says. And he comes to the world to be the savior of it. He had his eyes set on the cross of Calvary from, from the moment of his birth. On that cross, he would bear all of the sin and all of the guilt of his people. He would satisfy the righteous wrath of holy God on that cross. And that day is now just days away. And these self-satisfied men show up, flash their badges and demand answers and think they can intimidate him. And so I'm impressed that he answers in such a reasonable way. If they would answer a simple question, he'll tell them what they want to know. Now, I want you to think about this. If you're at all familiar with the book of Job in the Old Testament, Jesus' answer parallels Yahweh's answer to Job. Job says to Yahweh, what right gives you, gives, what right, how did you get the right to be God? How did I write it? I should read it, right? What gave God the right to be God? What gives God the right to be God? That's what, that's what Job wanted. What gives you the right to be God? What gives you the right to bring calamity into my life? What gives you right the right to boast in me to the devil and then to hand me over the devil for suffering? What gives you the right? Well, the answer that Yahweh gives Job at the end is you're going to have to prove that you have the right to that information before I give it to you. So Jesus requires that the chief priests and the elders demonstrate the humility and discernment to hear what he has to say. And he'll know that by their answer to the question. Where did John get his baptism? Where did John get his authority? Was it from heaven or was it from men? So they begin reasoning among themselves. That, that phrase, by the way, means that this took a little time. This wasn't a quick, what do you think? This, yeah, let's go. They're talking about it. They're rolling it around. What should we say? If we say from heaven, let's say it was, let's say it was from heaven. It was from heaven, right? Well, yeah, but let's not say that. Why? Well, if we say that, he'll want to know why we didn't believe John. Oh, yeah. Well, let's say it was from men. We can't say it was from men. Why? Because the people think John was a prophet. And if we say that it was from men, the people we depend upon will be mad at us. Keep in mind, these men are politicians. They hated the people. They despised them. They held them in low view. They spoke abusively about them, but they needed them to maintain their power. So I don't, I don't mean to offend anybody with this, but they decided that the most reasonable answer was the most idiotic answer. We don't know. You don't know. You're the chief priests of the people. You rule over the temple, and you don't know. 
who this guy is, who's been teaching three years and who's been performing countless miracles. You don't know. That's the safe answer. Let's recap it. These men thought they had everything under control. And then Jesus answers them a very simple question and reduces them to stuttering, mumbling fools who can't answer. We can all pause to shake our heads at him if you want. But before we do that, the church faces issues today, simple questions that cause just tremendous difficulty. Homosexuality is, is an issue. There are many who understand the Bible's not changed. Homosexuality is a sin. It was a sin when Moses wrote those words. It was a sin when God destroyed Sodom in the book of Genesis. It was a sin during the time of Christ. It was a sin during the time of Paul. It's a sin. In most ways, it's like a sin like any other sin. It's a sin that can be forgiven, and the people who commit it can be delivered. We understand that mainline denominations have capitulated to the spirit of the age. They affirm homosexuality and homosexual marriage. But sadly, churches that are supposed to be evangelical are rapidly doing this. There's a very large Southern Baptist church in Orlando, Florida, that has homosexual members and and involved in ministry, not ordination, but membership. Rick Warren's Saddleback Church has ministries that are aimed at welcoming homosexuals and transgenders instead of preaching Christ to them and speaking the truth to them. Some of these pastors, at least, I think got caught in the same trap as the chief priests of the scribes. We didn't expect this question. Not from somebody sitting in our own pew. So what do we say? Do, do we say God hates homosexuality? We'll lose all our people. Do we say he's happy with homosexuality? We'll lose a bunch of people. So let's just, you know, let's just avoid the question. We can't derive our doctrine from cowardice. That's not safe. It's not, it's not wise. We have to derive our doctrine from scripture. So go ahead and shake your heads at the chief priests and scribes, just, or elders, just make sure that you're not doing the same thing. So Jesus makes it simple for them. They, they won't say, we don't know. So he says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? He doesn't end it. He gives them a parable. A parable to consider. Now he asks them to consider and to reason together. A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. And the man came to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered and said, oh, I will, sir. But then didn't go. Here's the question, and it's still multiple choice. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, notice they don't reason together. There's no pause. They simply said, well, the first duh that's easy the first one jesus said to them truly i say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of god before you 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. There's the answer to his question, by the way. He knew that they didn't believe that John had come from God. They denied that John's authority came from heaven. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, how how did they see that the tax collectors and prostitutes believed? Because they repented. And they demonstrated repentance by transformed lives. You, seeing this, did not even regret afterwards so as to believe him. That is, they didn't believe John's claims to be from God, and then they didn't believe the evidence of changed lives. It's not the son who says yes, who did his father's will. It's the son who did yes. It's the son who actually obeyed. Promises are nothing. Obedience is everything. Now, we are not saved by obeying the law. The point of this is not to say it's the son who obeys the law that God saves. The obedience in this case is trusting Christ. The obedience here is trusting Christ. It's like John chapter 6. You need to do the work of my father who sent me. What is the work? To believe on him whom he sent. The faith that saves us has to be actual faith. Genuine faith. True faith. That actual genuine true faith is a gift of God. And it is always accompanied by some things. By a softened heart. By recognition of sin and hatred of sin within ourselves. By repentance, not penance. There's a modern idea, not modern, but there's an idea of penance, doing things of penance, doing works. Repentance is not penance. Penance is doing the things that please God. Repentance is simply turning away from the sin that's killing us and turning toward the Lord. And sometimes I feel like I live in a revolving door because I turn away from my sin and I turn toward the Lord and before I know it, I've turned back to sin again. And so as Christians, we live with repentance before us all the time. And ultimately, that actual true genuine faith brings a desire to obey. That desire to obey is is often frustrated by a lack of understanding how. I don't know how. But that's what we desire. So let's think about the fig trees again. The chief priests and elders, and we could add the the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and Levites and all the other types that were around, had said that they loved God. They had said that they obeyed him. They had said that they were righteous and that his righteousness mattered. But they didn't actually obey him. And we know that because when the Son of God shows up, They meet him with hostility and opposition and jealousy and eventually with murderous rage. Their claims of righteousness are like the leaves on that barren fig tree. You look at the leaves on that fig tree and you think, oh, there is faith there. But when you go to examine it, as Jesus went with his disciples to examine that fig tree, they can't find any fruit. There's no faith. There's no actual submission 
Of all the people in Israel, these should have been the men to welcome Jesus on the, the triumphant entry day, if not before, to say, you're the one we've been waiting for. Come in and take your seat in the throne of God. Instead, they remained so committed to their wicked ways that they put the Son of God to death. They were fruitless fig trees under the judgment of God. On the other hand, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed in Jesus. They believed his gospel. They repented of their sin and they set their sights on him. And here's the thing. With fig trees, fruit begins to grow before the leaves begin to grow. So <coughs> that, that tax collector comes and hears Jesus, not Matthew, but the tax collector comes and hears Jesus, or a prostitute hears Jesus, or a drunk hears Jesus, or an abuser hears Jesus. And they don't immediately start stapling on fig trees and saying, I'm with you, I'm here. They go away pondering. They go away wondering. They go away looking at their heart and troubled by what they find. And their softened heart, the work of the Spirit gives them the courage to examine their hearts and their lives. And they say, I'm in trouble. I increasingly see my own sin and my need for a savior. And oh, I see Jesus. I see his cross, even though it's not there yet at that time. I see Jesus and he's my hope. One of my favorite characters in the, the gospels is the, the, the father in Matthew 17. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is growing, but that faith that grows then begins to produce repentance. And somebody says, where's, where's old Benjamin? Who? Well, he used to sit under that tree with his, his wineskin all day. People would stumble around him. I haven't seen him. Did he die? No, he didn't die. I saw him in the market. Really? Yeah, he looked good. He looked fine. What happened to old Benjamin? And that is the leaves beginning to show. Old Benjamin isn't walking around saying, look at me, look at me, I'm different, I'm changed. He's not even aware, maybe, how much he's changed. But the other people around him see that. Let's, let's bring this home to us. All of this is a matter of authority. The chief priests and the scribes demanded that Jesus yield to their authority, but he refused to do that. Instead, he, he established his authority. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who claimed to be a Christian by their words, but they lacked the fruit of faith and the fruit of a Christian life. Their fruitless fig trees are nothing but leaves. I've met a few. I've challenged just a few of the few that I've met, and, and of those I've challenged... Only a few of those were willing to listen. Most insist that they're true Christians, even though they live godless, fruitless lives. They base it on, I, I, this happened to me when I was a child, or I went forward, or I raised my hand, or I went to camp, or I was baptized, or something. And they have no actual basis to say that. They've convinced themselves that the purpose of a fig tree is to bear leaves, just to be an ornamentation, or, uh, ornamentation, no, ornamentation. an ornamentation. Thank you, in, in your front yard. 
we know how the chief priests and elders answered Jesus' question about John's authority. They just evaded. We don't, we don't know. We don't know. Now think about this. What if one of those men, or, or maybe if a woman standing there listening, had come up to Jesus and said, I knew John was from God. I knew that. But I was afraid of losing my sin. Or I was afraid of what they would think of me. I, I'm, I'm trapped by my own nature. How would Jesus have received them? Well, I can tell you that the devil would have been whispering to them, Jesus is going to reject you. He's just going to say, it's too late. There's no point now. You missed it. Though we know from the thief on the cross that it's not too late. It's never too late. We know because we know the scriptures and we know because we know the Lord Jesus that he would have welcomed them and assured them of forgiveness. They would have been born again in that moment they trusted him. And I suppose if, if you read some of the Puritans, there would have come a time in their life when they would have regretted that they had not trusted him earlier in life so as to have a more fruitful life. But the Lord doesn't say, if you can't come to me by this point, don't bother, because there's not time for you to do wonderful things for me. If you don't know Christ today, then you remain under the judgment of God. It's simply a matter of authority. Jesus is the Lord, and that's what he says. He says, apart from me, no one gets to the Father. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says in John 14, 6. And apart from me, nobody comes to God. Enemies of the gospel say, well, that's exclusive and that's nasty and that's mean. It's the kindest thing that's there. If you were diagnosed with some terrible, virulent form of cancer, uh, we heard about a woman uh, th this morning in, in Creighton related to somebody in, at our church in Creighton who was just diagnosed with cancer in mid-March and she just died. What if you've been diagnosed with something that is raging through your body and they say there's one thing we can do and it will save your life? And you said, well, that's narrow. No, it's wide open. There's life on the other side of that. There's death everywhere else. Whether you acknowledge Jesus as God or not, he is God and he is Lord. He's reigning over all creation, and that includes you. If you come to him in faith and you call upon him for mercy, you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic ritual. It's simply calling upon the living God. Some of you might feel that your faith in Christ is weak and that you're prone to drifting. And, and I, I don't know every reason that people drift, but I know in our time there's a primary reason that people drift, and that is they keep trying to live within the old world as though they're not in the old world. There's a furious wind coming out of the north today. Oh, it's cold out there. Linda says that this past winter it'd warm up a little bit, and then winter stomps back in the door and says, and, and one more thing. 
And it's like, you know, winter's just kind of turned around and scowled at us, and it's going to warm up, and then it's going to be cool again. And she's not over it yet. He's not over it yet. Yeah, so we've got this furious wind coming out of the north. There are people who think, I can go fly my Christian flag against the wind. No, you send your, you send your flag up, you send your kite up, it's going to be carried along. And so maybe the first thing to think about doing if you feel that your faith is weak and that you're prone to drift from him is shut off the TV, shut off the music, immerse yourself in the word and prayer and fellowship. That doesn't mean that you can ever watch secular TV again or listen to secular music again, but maybe you're being so overwhelmed with it that it's determining the path of your life and that you simply need to cut that off. Some of us carry dueling scars. Dueling scars. We've come through our life. We've we've dealt with these issues of authority. We've tried to stand against the world. We've succeeded. We've failed. And, and we're scarred. We're not scarred by the world. We're not scarred by sin. We're scarred by Christ. Because we've been dueling with him over who's boss. We've been dueling with him over who has the authority. If you belong to him, he loves you too much to let you win that battle. And he'll scar you as much as you need to be scarred. Some of you might have scars that are still stapled shut and sewn shut and they're itchy and they're painful. Others of us can take a close look at our hearts and souls and say, oh, I remember that scar. Jesus, the night that he was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples and he said, come and look at my hands. Look at the nail marks. Look at the nail marks on my feet. Look at the wound in my side. Those are the wounds of love. This is my love for you, he says. The dueling scars we have in our, in our fights with God over who's God are the marks of his love on us. And they might stretch and itch and pain us today. But in eternity, we'll look at that and we'll say, I remember when he gave me that scar. He wouldn't let me go. I remember when I was pulling so hard to get away from him and he wouldn't let me go. I was pulling so hard he had to wound me like he put Jacob's hip out of joint. He had to give me a thorn in my flesh because of my pride, because of my self-sufficiency. And I've got the scars. Here's the thorn, 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 here's the thorn. We're covered with thorns. And those are the signs of his love for us. It's hard to stand against the avalanche of the world. It's impossible for a Christian to stand against Christ. He'll win. It's a matter of authority. Let's yield to his. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your kindness to us. We acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Father, I ask that if there's anyone here who doesn't, that you would persuade them by your spirit. 
I don't have the ability to do that. No human being does. There's not enough arguments to convince somebody that Jesus is Lord. There's not enough arguments to convince somebody that he's Savior. We can only declare what he is from your word. And then it's up to your spirit. So I don't appeal to them to do the impossible. I appeal to you to do the impossible and open their eyes and open their hearts that they would believe. There is nobody beyond your salvation. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us today and ask that you would bless them, remind them of your love and devotion to them. We lift up Donna especially and ask for you to strengthen her and bless her where she is as she serves her sister. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.